the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to one more episode of Sake on Air. The world's leading podcast in expanding the dialogue around Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. The show is brought to you with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association here in Japan and normally broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. Uh, my name is Justin Potts and I am one of your regular sake, shochu hosts and navigators here on the show. Today we're going to be joined by Miss Hannah Kirshner, who is the author of Water, Wood, and Wild Things. By the time you're hearing this, it should be out into the world. If it's not, you can probably pre-order it uh, across a number of different places on the internets. Um, and I would very much encourage you to do so. Um, and I am very excited to just sit down and chat with her about this beautiful book that she has put out into the world. Um, Hannah, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. I'm excited to chat. Thank you for having me. I am very excited as well. Thank you so much. You are tuning in with us from Ishikawa Prefecture, correct? That's right. I'm in the town of Yamanaka, of... which um, the my book, Water, Wood, and Wild Things, is, is about the material culture of this town, including, of course, sake. When reading the book, I actually had to s stop and kind of look it up and see, is this actually a town? Um, because just the name of it, Yamanaka, like in the mountain, that, that's literally, and that's literally how people re refer to very rural locations, like in Japanese, like, you yeah. know, like they'll say like Yamanooku, like deep in the mountains or like Yamanaka or like, it's just, you know, it's out there. It's in the boonies. It's in, it's in the mountains. And I was like, what an incredibly appropriate name for, um, for a city that's tied to this experience that you're sharing. And it really, it describes the landscape too. We are surrounded by mountains, very close to the city of Japan, but surrounded by mountains. It's very um, green. There's a forest, there's a river. The town is sort of constrained on one side by the Daishoji River and the other side by Mizunashi Mountain. So yeah, you really feel um, truly in the mountains yeah. and it's an onsen town. So that's a big part of its history too, is the hot spring. Excellent. Beautiful. Um, before we get into really talking a lot about the book, I just want our kind of our to give just a little bit of context for where you're coming from with this book. Um, if you wouldn't mind just telling me first just a little bit about just sort of your background with rural li living and those things that sort of gave you the affinity or interest to bring you out to Yamanaka. <laughs> sure. So I grew up in a small town outside of Seattle. North Bend, Washington, which no. no, so I, this is, get, I grew up in Bothell. Wait, you grew up in Bothell? Wait, I grew up I think, in Bothell. What? Okay. Well, oh, all right. Well, so maybe you'll relate uh, used, to this too. Like yeah. when I came to Yamanaka the first time, the landscape felt so familiar, like evergreen trees, like huge ferns, just um, trees dripping with moss, everything's so green. And then yeah. where you have like all these sort of microclimates intersecting of farmland and ocean and forest. So it really like 
yeah, that I, I definitely felt this strong sense of like coming home when I first came here at the same time was like going somewhere completely new and different. So yeah. Wild. Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) we grew up about 20 minutes away from one another. It seems. Yeah. I used to, I, I, pass through North Bend all the time to go snowboarding every week and uh-huh. head out that way to go and head out that way to go camping or hiking or I, I traveled through there a lot. My my yeah. my regular mechanic was um, that I would take my car to was in North Bend. So amazing. So yeah, it's yeah, it's like it's the last stop before you head into the Cascade Mountains. Yeah. So as um a lot of people from Washington State are familiar with it. That's yeah. like where they stop to get gas or yeah. like get a snack <laughs> after going skiing. It, like. it provides a very specific, plays a very specific role in people's in people's experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay. So rural living or semi-rural living to a degree is that's that's it was coming to Japan wasn't that wasn't the first thing, right? You were entrenched in nature. I mean, it's it's beautiful out there. I mean, it's an, an incredible area. I love. Yeah, I personally, I, I love the Pacific Northwest, and I and and that and that area is fantastic. I absolutely love it. Yeah, my, I mean, my my mother grew a lot of the vegetables that we ate. We had sheep and goats. We had chickens, and and like most of my childhood was playing in the woods. Like that's what I remember. Okay, excellent. And so you 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 started in the Pacific Northwest, and in, yeah. in in some some true some true rural living. From sure. there. Where's where does food come into play? Where does writing come into play? How did how were you sort of guided to the town of Yamanaka and how did you sort of get to writing this book about the yeah. specific topic? A lot of strands wove together in in coming here. Um, so I went to art school, the Rhode Island School of Design and studied painting, but um, food and writing were always sort of interests too. So I took food writing classes. I was always cooking. I was known for my wacky dinner parties in college. And, uh, you know, I had all these different interests and I wasn't really sure like which one to prioritize or which, which one was going to be a career. But um, yeah, I pursued painting actually as my degree. And my favorite painter when I was in high school and college was Yoshitomo Nara. Um, and so it was like probably in college that I started getting serious about studying Japanese because I figured, okay, if my favorite contemporary painter is Japanese, like I need to go to Japan eventually. And, um, after graduating from art school, I applied for a Fulbright to, I was right by then I was also racing bicycles and I applied for a Fulbright to go to Japan and write a graphic novel about Japanese bicycle culture, which the Fulbright committee not surprisingly didn't quite get that yeah so um I did not get to go to Japan on a Fulbright (laughs) but I was able to save up enough money by working in a taco shop here's the food strand weaving okay okay um, to go stay for a month in a house with a bunch of bike messengers in Kyoto cool amazing you know I went back to Rhode Island eventually I moved to New York because I knew I wanted to pursue a career in either art or food and I figured New York was the place to be for either of those things. Yeah. Um, I was working at a fancy cocktail bar by then. I figured if you're a good bartender, you could work anywhere in the world. So I'd sort of picked that up in Rhode Island and then it did allow me to move to New York. And then I basically ended up doing food styling and food writing. Okay. So food styling is 
preparing the food for photo shoots and making it look beautiful. So like when you see a photo of food in a magazine or a cookbook or an advertisement, um, it took at least six people to make that a food stylist and their assistant to actually prepare the food so that it is looking its best at the exact moment of the photograph. Um, a prop stylist who's setting the table, a photographer, um, and then they probably both have assistants too, and maybe a, a um, creative director anyway. Yeah. So I was doing that, uh, writing, freelance writing, not not a very lucrative career. Mm -hmm. So the food styling paid the bills. And yeah. then um, meanwhile, I was writing. I mean, I've had some great bylines, like the New York Times and Sever and Taste and Vogue, but um, the food styling was really paying the rent. Yeah. Then about five years ago, the summer of 2015, one of those bike messenger friends from that first trip to Kyoto mm -hmm. told me that he had a friend who had this sake bar in Yamanaka. And could I host this friend when he came to New York? Okay. So Yusuke Shimoki, who there's a chapter in Water, Wood, Wood and Wild Things where I describe him as a sake evangelist because mm -hmm. he is very passionate about mm -hmm. spreading sake to the world. Yeah. Um, he came and um, we ha I happened to have ha scheduled a dinner party with some friends during that time. And Shimoki-san, he had brought an entire suitcase. So he basically brought his bar to New York City. He had like <laughs> six ishobin, the like big, big bottles of sake. And like yeah. probably, yeah, like another half a dozen or a dozen like regular sized bottles. Yeah. Um, and then he had five different types of glassware. He had Yamanaka shiki, the like wooden wow. wooden sake cups from yeah. Yamanaka. And then he brought out his framed certificate of expertise of, um, you know, sommelier-like certification. Yeah. At that time, I think like fewer than 200 people had. Okay. And um, that level of certification. Yeah. And, and uh, he then put on his uniform, which included this awesome apron. Like one of those, it's the indigo colored apron yeah. with the white insignia printed on it. Yep. And the like orange and white and navy uh, apron yeah. tie, right? Yeah. yeah. It's very iconic. Yeah. So I was like, where do I get an apron like that? This logo <laughs> is great too. It's basically like a sake bottle and a stock of rice. And um, yeah. it's a great, great logo. Yeah. So um, he said, well, if you want an apron like this, you've got to come work in my bar. I said, okay. Done. <laughs> and then he said, well, you have to come for two months. I said, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, all right, great. <laughs> and and um, maybe it was a joke, but it became yeah. a real plan. Cool. So Excellent. by that fall, like that was the summer. And by that fall, I was in Yamanaka. Okay. And then where we're talking, is this, this is when, like 2000? 2015. 2015. So, and at that okay. time I was already sort of thinking I wanted to write a cookbook or a book and, and it seemed like a great, I mean, how many people get an opportunity to go work at a sake bar in a tiny mountain village in Japan, like that's usually a one man show. Yeah. It just seemed like a great opportunity to learn more about sake and about Japanese food. And I wasn't exactly sure where it would lead, but it seemed like it was going to lead somewhere interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So Waterwood and Wild Things, how do you describe the book? It's basically, it's about the material culture of Yamanaka mm -hmm. and the people making the things that define that place, mm -hmm. their stories, and how that weaves together into the culture and community of the place. Mm -hmm. So like I could have gone all over Japan 
profiling different amazing craftspeople, farmers, mm-hmm. hunters. I mean, they're amazing, amazing shokunin all over Japan. But yeah. what I wanted to do was go deep into one place and show how all those things are connected. And, mm-hmm. you know, since this is a show about sake, I mean, I think, yeah. you know, putting it into context, like, I mean, it's great to taste it. It's great to know all the technical stuff about it. But like, how is, how, like, what's the context? Yeah. Why does it matter? And what's yeah. interesting about it? Yeah, it's it impacts people's lives on so many levels in the context and in the space within which it's made. Right there, there are so many, there are so many active players in in making that sake a reality on so many levels and so many layers. Some with seemingly very minor roles, and some very central, you know, pivotal, like the act of actually physically making it. But it's unless you spent as you did you know a good five years or whatever pretty much just entrenched in there yeah you're just not going to see that you can take all the all the sake courses in the world that you want but it just it's it's not going to resonate in the same way yeah although i mean i don't want to make it seem like the enjoyment of sake is inaccessible is is, yeah right i mean it's not the enjoyment isn't contingent upon that but but. right there are fantastic books about the technical aspects of sake and and um i didn't need to duplicate that i wanted to do something different and um tell stories that would make people care like not only about sake like but each chapter in my book so water wood and wild things um and then the fourth section is cultivation those are each sections um that have three or four chapters within each about like each chapter is a different person and what they make and i spent extensive time with each of them either working for them or um apprenticing to them or just following them in their work for months or in some cases years and um like i want when people read those chapters for them to be able to imagine the smells and sights the scenery and and also just relate to those stories i mean it's it's driven by the stories of those people yeah absolutely 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 so then how did the process of writing this book in the process of writing this book, you've been working on this for the past, what you said, about two, three years? Yeah. So, so okay. So 2015 was that apprenticeship at Engawa Bar with um, Yusuke Shimoki. And at that time, I started, I made friends with a paper artisan, a man making charcoal in his village where he's the only person left that lives in that village. I met um, Yamanaka is basically famous for its hot springs. And it's wood turning, which are kind of go hand in hand because you mm-hmm. make the wooden bowls and cups and then you can sell that to the onsen hot spring tourists. Yeah. So um, so I met, you know, amazing, some of the best wood turners in Japan and therefore in the world yeah. <laughs> um, who are just making exquisite cups and bowls and, and sort of got the idea that like, you know, I wanted to write the book as I've described it as sort of like how all these things come together into mm-hmm. the culture of a town and the community. Um, in 2018, you know, there was a whole process of writing a book proposal, finding yeah. an agent, selling it yeah. to a publisher. Um, once was that I, something that you just independently set out to do? You were like, this book needs to exist. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to go find somebody who's who's on board with this. Yes. And then there were many people that, you know, helped shape it along yeah. the way. But um, yeah, so um, I was very lucky to have a fantastic agent agent who um, gave, got me a great publishing deal with Viking and that 
then gave me the funding to be able to go and spend a year, which turned into two years. So the money did run out, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it immersed in Yamanaka. So it, yeah. like it was, it was basically a five-year process that at first started as visits of a few months at a time, mm. you know, once or twice yep. a year, and then two years of actually completely, yeah, a year and a half, two years of like completely living in Yamanaka. I've obviously returned to Yamanaka. That's yeah. another story, but yeah, to, yeah like eight, 18 months or so of like full-time working on the book and, um, and spending time working for or following apprenticing to all these different people. Um, yeah. there are 15 chapters, so 15 different yeah. things, but, yeah. um, Let's see, you asked about the process, right? Yeah, I'm curious about it. So how did, how did sure. it fit into your life? So you're there for, you know, whatever, it's 18 months or two years, pretty much straight. Yeah. And, you know, the, the characters in your book, right? They're all, they're all real people that have, you know, very, you know, just inspiring, you know, skill sets. And they're all, but they're also, they're all very human. They're all very, um, there you're spending time with you're spending very intense i i think time yeah. with these people yeah um yeah i mean it was a funny and you're and you're and then you're having to articulate it at the same yeah. time yeah it was i mean it's kind of it, it's a funny kind of blend of journalism and just living right because yeah. these i intentionally sought out these people and experiences so that i could write about them but then at the same time like i was living that life like that's yeah. who i was spending my time with yeah. i was in yamanaka living my yamanaka life yeah. um but there were sort of three strands to the research so there was the experiences yeah. um then there was like background research which i so my Japanese is conversational, but I'm not fluent and I'm not particularly literate. I'm still working on that. <laughs> um, so I um, hired a friend to help me, uh, Yu Mizukami. So he was like my research assistant. And so I would send him a list of questions I had, like data I wanted, like statistics I wanted, or history I was curious about, or like if I came across a book, like you know, I found a series of books published by the city of Kaga, which is the sort of larger area that Yamanaka is a part part of about like just Kaga history or even yeah. like a book about one of the tiny outer villages of Yamanaka. So I'd send him that stuff and be like, can you can you look for this or can you summarize it for me? Yeah. So, yeah. So there's the experience then like the background research. And then also finally, I did follow up interviews. So like once I had felt that I had gotten enough of the experience to have a story to write that I understood the work I understood the person um, and I had a story then I would do a follow-up interview to make sure that what I had understood was correct whether that was actually like fact checking particular data points or like actually just like oh I thought you said this is that what you meant because yeah. and I yeah. did those also with the help of a translator because like I said my Japanese is conversational like I was it was sufficient for building relationships with all of these people and following their work but um not always I wasn't always able to convey the nuance that I wanted to in my questions or yeah. um, be 100% confident that I had understood the nuance and what somebody else was telling me yeah so that yeah, that was the three parts of the uh, research. Because it's in communicating your your experience, it's the level of detail that you have is is pretty. It's incredible. I, actually, that was one thing I was continually impressed by on on a, 
on multiple levels. One, just the, like you said, that sort of fact checking level, like when you're explaining, say for example, how significant water is in the process of brewing, you went out of your way to find out how many thousands of liters are pumped through the brewery that day, you know, in a single day or whatever, you know, that's, it's I just a, think it's, that's fun as a reader. I think as a reader, it gives you sort of, it makes you trust the narrator a little more. It's like, absolutely. Oh, they were, they, they did their research. Yeah, and it's just absolutely. like, even if you can't visualize like, how, you know, however many liters of water that is, it's like, Oh, it's a lot. And instead yeah. of saying a lot, like, why not say like the exact number? Yeah. And it was, it was something that I just, I, I feel like is missing from a lot of, you know, experience. Like, like you said, they'll say it's a lot or it's, there's some colorful word or some colorful language, but you actually went through and you put in very specific information about all these things. It's just in the midst of, you know, a very natural, almost conversational sort of, you know, approach to sort of explain these things in a very, very human, very, it it is very approachable. It's very, very, the language is very, very approachable. And then in that, you have that sort of data to back it up. And then at the same time, you have, detail such as the kind of car that I can't remember was it was it Nakajima-san the, the I mean I pretty much always mention mention if someone's you driving know, what their car is I don't you know, know I, just, I love here, that kind here's, of detail yeah here, think, here's I the mean, car he used to drag race before he got into oh, yeah. crafting beautiful whatever it's like it wasn't that he just used to drag race this car he used to drag race this I don't know, whatever it was, a the Nissan Lotus Super something, 7. Whatever. Yeah, or oh, whatever. No, you no, know, or... Yeah, the Lotus Super 7 and the <laughs> Nissan. Okay, I forget the model of the car because that's okay. I'm not a car geek. But no, yeah, so so Nakashima-san is the, the woodturner that I wrote right. about. And um, I first met him also in the sake bar. The sake bar okay. really was sort of the hub. I mean, look, the way a gra- any great bar is, like yeah. it's, it is it is a community center. It's a place where people connect. And yeah. um, it was, it was where I met so many of the people I later ended up writing about. So, and, and I drank from a cup that he had made a wooden cup. Um, it's very thin yet very strong, dark wood, almost with like this sort of like, reminds me of like a tiger's eye, the wood grain pattern. Yeah. Um, and he had made this shape specifically for Yamanaka's local sake because the sake brewer is his um, classmate. Like they were, they they were the same year in school. So, yeah. Um, um, but yeah. So so he before he became before he committed to being a wood turner, he had a car mechanic phase and was yeah. doing drag racing. Cool. And cool. Cool. And so to, to get into sake a little bit here. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, you're touching on uh, Shimoki-san's bar what were your, what are, what are sort of the things that you took away personally? So you spent, you spent a significant amount of time behind that bar or alongside that bar in working with him. Um, what, what were sort of your personal takeaways from that experience? Sure. Well, okay. So there are two chapters about sake in the book. There's the bar, which is first, um, that is where my experience at Yamanaka started. And then I also worked in the Sakaguda, the sake brewery. Yeah later on so um obviously two very different kinds of experiences yeah. with sake so Absolutely. at the time that i worked in a sake bar i mean with my experiences bartending of course i had i had encountered nihonshu i had encountered sake and um had some very nice sake even but honestly sake just kind of tasted like sake i didn't really get the nuance um I think that's something that comes from tasting a lot yeah. <laughs> and a lot of things side by side, a lot of things consecutively. And so to have 
this opportunity to taste mm. line up five different things and taste them or to taste the same sake and like five different cups and see how the cup changed it or at five different temperatures and yeah. see how five different temperatures ch changed that same yeah. sake and um and also to sort of build build up my flavor vocabulary like mm. a lot of the terms we use in wine tasting come from a particular context i mean and there's actually a lot to say about that too because it mm. you know um wine doesn't have to taste like blackberry it could taste like passion fruit or like whatever yeah. you know your vocabulary for taste is based on your own cultural perspective yeah and so whatever you're able to reach into and right and pull right from. right so yeah. it also expanded my vocabulary of taste so like i don't know i i feel that fermented beverages like wine and sake like they're very poetic and so it gave me a different set of poetry of like the smell of rice steaming, the smell of like walking through the forest in Yamanaka or like persimmon or fresh persimmon versus dried persimmon. Yeah. Like it might, it's just like the poetry of it changed too yeah. by the context. Yeah. So, Interesting. yeah. But I think, you know, the biggest thing that made an impression on me was the way that Shimoki-san works, how mm. every single detail in his bar matters, whether it's cleaning the bathroom or hanging a coat or like knowing the right temperature to heat a particular sake mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It all mattered. Yeah. And it all got the same amount of care. Yeah. Maybe not the same amount of interest, but the same amount but of similar, care. Yeah. It was, yeah. yeah it, it, you're, it, it, it all, it's all going to get done to the, right, in the way that it ought to be done. Yeah. How about just the experience of the bar? I mean, there's drinking sake, but, you know, a local bar in a rural, town in the foot in the foothills of the mountains in japan that's another very i say very specific um context or environment what sure. was yeah how about, so, how about just what is what role did the bar just sake aside what role did the bar play for you and what were sort of your takeaways from just that so space angawa has six seats at the counter and then it has like a little bench with a couple more seats in case it gets crowded and then a private room for, with four seats. And that's it. I guess there's a little more standing room if like if it's a really hopping night in there. Yeah. And usually Shimoki-san runs the place by himself completely. So my apprenticeship there was really out of novelty, not out of necessity. Mm. And um, he, you know, it's it's so especially in rural areas, it's like the options generally are you take over the family business or you move to the city and find a good job. So his route of entrepreneurship, of opening this bar when he was 30, um, is unusual. Mm. And you, from looking at statistics in Japan, you would think that young people don't drink sake. But in his bar, his passion is so contagious that there are young people in there every night yeah. like asking him what they should drink whatever he recommends they'll drink yeah. Yeah. and people actually come from as far as osaka or tokyo to like come to his bar because they've heard about him they've heard about this special place yeah. and they come specifically for that At the same time there was like my neighbor in her 80s would come in once a week and have a sake a whiskey and a beer she'd yeah. counted out her change ahead of time she had you know the exact amount and she'd have her three drinks every night, or I mean, sorry, every week, um, once a week. 
Um, some of Shimoki's friends would come in after their soccer game. Like I mentioned, the, the wood turner that I met, but he was one among many. I mean, it's a craftsman's town. And so there are a lot wood, wood turners, uh, lacquer artisans, maquillet, which is painting these ornate designs that are um, sprinkled with gold dust and, and other precious minerals. Yeah. And, um, you know, everybody, everybody right. came in there. And I think that drinking and drinking spaces in Japan are very special in that, I mean, people often talk about drinking as sort of um, suspending the rules of hierarchy and etiquette mm -hmm. a bit. So you're freer to speak your mind. Yeah. Uh, and, but it's not just getting drunk that it's like a space that is designated for that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, some people, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't, you can be drinking a non-alcoholic drink. It still is just like a different kind of space. And, and I mean, I think that exists everywhere. Like there are things that you will say in a bar or at a dinner party that you wouldn't say at work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah or yeah. a kind of bond that you create with people in, in those kinds of activities. So, yeah, so working in the bar definitely made me part of the community in a way that might not be accessible if I just moved here in some other way. Yeah. So you go from the bar to, and studying sake furiously to, as you said, going to the brewery, <laughs> yeah. to be in the brewery and actually going and making the sake. That is, that is a significant jump. Those are, well, the only through line there is, is, is the liquid in that bottle. Um, aside That's from right. that, they're very, they're very different experiences. What was, so you, First, you know, let, let us know where you were at. Was it you're at Matsuda Shuzo? Yeah, and the right? sake they make is called Shishino Sato. Shishino Sato, right? So Matsuda Shuzo is the company name. Sometimes I think this can be a little confusing. So Matsuda yeah. Shuzo is the company name, and yeah. then Shishino Sato is like the brand name. So yeah, um, yeah, when we're referring to the sake is Shishino Sato, but yeah. like the business is Matsuda Shuzo. Yeah, right. sort of like I guess it's like. Santori is like a whiskey brand and yeah. then Santori makes like lots of different things. A different, yeah. Torisu or kaku yeah. bean or whatever. But yeah. but in the case of Matsuda Shuzo, they just make Shishino Sato and yeah. there's about that's their, that's 12, their label. 12, yeah. That's their label. Twelve there's about twelve varieties. Yeah. So. Okay. So what was how how do you then get into the world of making sake? And was that something that you set out to do when you were in there? Was that something that was on your list of things to immerse yourself in yeah i mean so once once i sort of had decided what the book was going to be i had kind of a roadmap because i knew that i wanted to include like if it's a book about the things that define yamanaka like um woodworking uh water you know, so so the water section includes like tea sake onsen and wood has several several different wood crafts um wild things is hunting, it's foraging, um, cultivation was rice and vegetables and the Matsuri, the town festival. So I, yeah, um, like there's a sake brewery in Yamanaka. If I'm going to write a book about Yamanaka's material mm. culture, like it needs to include yeah. the sake brewery, yeah. but finding my way in there was not so easy. That's, yeah. So like, <laughs> I, um, Shimoki, the bar owner introduced me to Matsura-san, the, the, Toji and owner, the sake mm. brewer and owner of um, Shishino Sato. Mm. So the first time we met, we had this great conversation and he was like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Come visit my sake brewery. Mm. And then in the morning, 
once he sobered up, he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't have guests. I can't have visitors. And that happened like two or three more times before he finally gave me even a tour. <laughs> really? Was that was that in the midst of the brewing season? Do you remember? Yeah, it was. Okay. So it's a very intense time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sake brewing yep. is condensed for, you know, unless you have a huge temperature controlled warehouse, it's obviously it's condensed yeah. into the cold months. And yeah. so those months are very busy. Yeah. But I mean, as you know, like opportunities in Japan are very much based on relationships. I mean, I think that's true everywhere, but yeah. especially here. And so that can make it really hard when you're new. But yeah. once you've established trust and relationships, suddenly all these doors open. Yeah. So it was actually the woodturner, Nakashima-san, okay. who, who said, um, it's, it's cool, Hannah's good. Like You, you can let her work yeah. at your sake brewery. Cool. And so it was because, um, because Nakashima-san- Because you were in the bar. <laughs> Nakashima-san vouched for me because I yeah. had already like worked with him. Um, we had, he taught me to make- uh, sake cups and bowls and we'd made a bunch of stuff together and drank a lot of whiskey together and cool. like built a really genuine friendship and um, he vouched for me so that's how I got in okay excellent 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 and so you're in there you're brewing you're doing all the things that are you know asked of you know everyone who's there in a in the brewery uh, creating this beautiful stuff there's there's a couple of quotes and things uh, in in the book um that i just i i i feel like it's a, they're a combination of your experience as well as sort of perspective uh from that maybe you've gathered from the producers other people involved um and i'm just sort of curious on the, so for example on one page you mention water water plays a big part right water is yeah. just sort of an ongoing theme in this entire book yeah and when you start talking about sake and when you look at just where sake breweries are built, if you ask someone, why is the sake brewery here? Nine times out of 10, maybe 49 times out of 50, they'll be like, it's, well, it was a water source usually in, in right. many cases, unless, you know, it wasn't just like a business that was forced to be born out of some other, some, some other circumstance. If that was, if they selected that place, it was for a water source. It wasn't necessarily for, you know, for access to something else. Um, and that's a huge theme in this book. And you, you talk about, or at least you touch on the the idea of, of terroir or, you know, this idea right. of, that, of that sense of place. You say, if sake has something like the terroir, it's from the water, not the rice. What led you to to feel that? Was that something that instantly you felt as soon as you were a part of that process? Or was that sort of an accumulation of things and sort of what fueled that that feeling, that interpretation? Um, yeah, I suppose it is an accumulation. I mean, most Sakagura get their rice from wherever the rice is good that year. Who, who, whoever can produce the quantity and quality of rice that they want that's not necessarily their neighbor yeah. so the connection to place has more to do with the, the water that they use like you're not going to truck in the water you might get your rice from somewhere else but your yeah. water source is going to be where you are and the hardness or softness of the water affects all sorts of things the way that the yeast is going to grow and all and all, all sorts of things about the ultimate flavor of the sake not only because of the the minerals that you taste in the water, but also how it affects 
like the cultivation of, of sake. So mm. yeah, and and like you were saying that the at sakaguda are usually built at a water source. I mean, working in the sakaguda, there's just like it's just there's like a constant flow of water and steam. It's not just the water that's going into the sake tanks, but it's like you're so there's there's about uh, five or six employees about at Matsuda Shuzo, and so like we're washing the rice or steaming the rice, uh, washing equipment. I mean, I feel like about 50% of what you do in a sakaguda is actually cleaning <laughs> because everything, <Probably> more. <laughs> every, yeah, everything needs to be clean. So you're just yeah. always cleaning every single yeah. task you do. You're going to clean your stuff before you use it and you're going to yeah. clean your stuff after you use it. So, yeah. um, yeah, washing the cloths that were in the steaming vat and washing the, uh, bags that the rice was soaked in and washing yeah. what you stirred the tanks with <laughs> just yeah. a lot of washing so there's yeah. just, just like water constantly yeah. flowing through yeah. hot water and cold water and yeah. yeah part of what i love so much about working in the sakaguda and i mean spoiler here maybe not if anybody mm -hmm. follows me on social media they've seen i've continued to work in the sakaguda since finishing the book yeah. um part of what i love so much about it is like the combination of science and poetry that it's like the choices being made are both artistic and scientific and and that there's not a conflict between spirituality and science either like yeah. you have a shrine inside the sakaguda that you pray to yeah. every day yeah. most days at the same time you have lab equipment and you're taking precise measurements and you're you're controlling things according to you know predetermined graphs of like how you want the arc of fermentation to go um and that those yeah those things are are just existing side by side right it's like it's, it's just, yeah to me sake it's just it's this thing that sits in this space that is like the it's almost like this perfect venn diagram of like this overlap between like nature's majesty and human ingenuity and curiosity <laughs> right there's this this perfect overlap right in the middle there that it's just it's, i don't know it's just exemplary yeah and i think it really captures something that you see more clearly in japan than some other places where like ado adopting new technology doesn't always mean getting rid of all the old technology so like you'll see inside the sakaguda side by side like really really ancient equipment that is like the same as people have been using for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah. and then like really high-tech stuff and so it's sort of like well if it's if it ain't broke don't fix it so like yeah. if something works fine the way you've always been doing it like you don't need to replace everything and make it shiny and new but also if there's like this great new way to do things that's going to help you like you can do that too yeah, and it's just it's such a sort of contrast that you see in japan like of the high tech and the traditional and but they're they're not always in conflict like often yeah. they're actually working in concert yeah absolutely absolutely so in, in doing that in the brewery just just personally was what part were there any particular just parts of the experience uh, it just in the brewery that really i don't know they resonated with you or is there something that every oh, yeah. day you're like gosh <laughs> i hope it's i hope it's i don't know i hope it's i, I hope today is you know, odori or no, odori you don't have anything to do with. I hope today we're, you know, we're starting the shubo. I hope we're pressing today or I hope we're, is there, was there any? Well, part of what I love is the variety, right? Yeah. Like, like you're, you're dealing with a living fermenting thing that is changing every day. So, so your activities are always changing too. And you're sort of, it's just sort of the same cycle as things overlap, but it's, it's just always changing. But yeah. I also, it's just like, it's so 
beautiful. That's what I still, still mm. just strikes me yeah. every time I walk in in the morning. And it's like, you know, the first work of the day is usually there's things being washed and the rice is being steamed. And so there's like this huge cloud of steam going up to the ceiling and filling the space and then the sunlight coming through that steam and like reflecting on water that's pooling on the floor. Mm. And then, um, so yeah, just that. And then he's like, you have the smell of sake and koji and steaming rice mm. and also like a little bit of the, like um, Matsuda Shuzo doesn't use wooden tanks, but they use, but some of the lids and some of the tools mm. are sugi. And so you still have that smell of like the wet sugi wood that's so aromatic. And then of course, my other favorite thing is the koji making because it's just magical. So like, you know, you're steaming rice and then sort of, so it's sort of dry. Like it's not as wet as if you were making a bowl of rice to eat yeah. and then inoculating it with the spores of koji mold i think the way we use koji right it can be kind of like a little tricky because koji can mean the spores it yeah. can mean the rice that's inoculated with koji you have to, other yeah, things you have to know I mean, the there context are, for, there are specific yeah. ways to say each of these things but generally it's all just koji yeah, so you're yeah. you're so so you're inoculating the rice with um aspergillus orizae spores and even that is very beautiful it's sort of like shaking the spores over this mm. rice that's spread out on a table and the spore, these sort of like wisps of the spores coming down and then like kneading that into the rice with your hands. And then over the course of a few days, like the rice becomes this like fuzzy white mat. And mm -hmm. again, it's, it's fragrance is like constantly changing. Um, every time you go into the koji room, which is warm, like almost like a sauna and you're working with a koji, like with your hands and that fragrance changing. And it's just sort of like magical transformation of rice into um koji rice it's like it's like fuzzy and white and fragrant and sweet and mm -hmm. then of course that that then transforms the starches of rice into sugars for the yeast mm -hmm. to ferment so it's uh yeah it's just a, it's beautiful <laughs> yeah it's it's beautiful and kind of kind of magical <laughs> yeah yeah i mean That's like yes okay we understand it scientifically what's happening but it's still yeah. magical I mean, it, it, I does, think... it doesn't get old <laughs> it's still... no i mean like, i think you, anybody you pull the quarter out of my ear a hundred times and even though i know you're you know it's still yeah i think anybody that makes bread or like kombucha or like vinegar like if you yeah. just made any kind of fermented thing pickles yeah. sauerkraut it's magical yeah. i mean yeah it's not magic, but it's magical. But it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Not not to give away, you know, any, any part of the book or anything, but you just you just mentioned that you are back brewing at the brewery again. Um at the end of or toward the end of one of the the chapter on sake, the way it sort of ended kind of suggested that the time that you had spent at the brewery might have been the last time that you would be spending time at the brewery um, without sorry, with that aside um what what brought you what brought you back into the brewery what inspired you to keep going or what sort of conversations did you have that led to you becoming further involved sure it's been pointed out to me that every single chapter in the book, it seems like I fall so in love with whatever the activity is that I like want to do it for the rest of my life. And that is completely genuine. Like yeah. there was a, a moment where I was like, oh, maybe I should just give up everything and be a wood turner. Yeah. Like who cares? I love it. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Whatever, whatever the thing is that I'm yeah. doing, uh, it, um, 
I have a tendency to get very wrapped up in it and be like, yeah. oh, this is amazing. I just want to yeah. do this. Yeah. But um, yeah, I really liked working in the Sakagura. I mean, I think that that combination of artistry and science really appeals to me. And um, I got the sense from Matsuda-san when I left that like maybe if I wanted to come back, it would be okay. Mm. I worked there for an entire season um, mm. for research for my book. And I really like did everything that all the other workers did. I did not want mm. to have special treatment. And also yeah. it's like, if I'm going to ask somebody for that much of their time mm. to teach me, to um, let me into their world so that I can write mm. about it, I, I don't want to be any more of a burden than I already am by asking that. So mm. I really tried to pull my own weight and, um, and, and I liked the work. So um, I came back, to, well, in the course of writing the book, I really fell in love with Yamanaka and and um, I became friends with so many of the people that mm. started out, you know, I, st I was writing about like mm. spending all that time together. We became friends and I really kind of became part of the community here and um, started to daydream about getting a house, <laughs> one of these beautiful old farmhouses that nobody yeah. seems to want and yeah. renovating it. And so yeah. that is that is my new project. I came okay. back um, to uh start working on the house and okay. um when i got back i mean everything was sort of complicated by the pandemic i was in new york for 10 months while my mm. apartment in yamanaka sat empty um yeah. but when i got back in the fall this past fall matsura-san asked me if i wanted to work at his brewery again mm. and i was so flattered like oh my god i actually did make myself useful yeah yeah, yeah. oh great so, Oh, yeah. that's amazing. And it's a very nice contrast to sitting in front of a computer writing. <laughs> not so great for your body. It's really yeah. nice to do some physical work and work with a team. Absolutely. It, 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 it leads to a kind of vitality that you definitely cannot get through staring down a computer <laughs> 12 hours a day. That's, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure, for sure. Oh, that's super exciting. Um. You, obviously you spent a lot of time doing a whole number of things that I would we could we could talk about all of these and I would very much like to but I do want to touch on a couple other things that just sort of that I thought about when I was reading the book um sort of getting back to the language and the communication you really committed to using Japanese words to tell your story yeah and a lot of times they were presented with very minimal context or maybe even lack of definition in some ways you just decided that this is the word to express to you what I've seen or what I've done or what I'm using or what this is and then you just committed to using that and continuing to use that you know in in communicating and articulating um what you were trying to share or communicate what was I and I personally I thought it was beautiful. I'm lucky in that I can, I have point of reference for that. So I'm, I'm a, I don't know, an, I'm an outlier, I guess, as to, yeah. as to whatever, like I can, I can look at that. And so I, you know, I have a point of reference for what that is, but it felt really nice and it felt really natural. And I'm sort of curious sort of what your thought process was when you were thinking about how to, the language that you wanted to use to articulate your experience. Yeah. So part of it was like, so I didn't, I did not want the writing to be cumbersome. I'm assuming most of my readers do not have any familiarity with Japanese other yeah. than some words that are already in the English vernacular. Yeah. 
but sometimes there's just not the right word in English. Like when we were talking about water, there's so many different words for water. Um, even in the prologue of Water, Wood and Wild Things, I say that when I first came here, people were calling this, these trees cedar. Sugi, they were saying is cedar, yeah. but Sugi is yeah. not cedar. It is not yeah. the cedar that I know from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. It turns out that's not cedar act either, actually. <laughs> Both are cypress trees and like yeah. the only true cedar grows in the Mediterranean. But it's like, mm. okay, like, like, let's give the readers some credit. Like they can get used to hearing the word Sugi for these yeah. trees. Yeah. They don't need to have it called cedar because yeah. cedar is going to bring up the wrong image for them. Yeah. So like, let me describe the tree yeah. and name it. And yeah. like introduce that word and then they can get, they can hear it that way. And yeah, it can be kind of like, so I don't want to just throw a whole bunch of words at people that they're not going to be familiar with and have the text then become really dense. But yeah. on the other hand, I think if you provide enough context, people can figure out what you're talking about sometimes. So yeah, there are times where I drop something in and I don't explain it because either the context gives you enough of an idea that you could guess. Yeah. Or if you really have to know, okay, go Google yeah. it, look it up. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, and then also just sometimes there were other times where it's just like the Japanese, like if it's a more beautiful word, yeah, I want to use the beautiful word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Was that it? Was that a challenge back and forth the editorial process, going back with your edit forth your no, editor, actually, figuring out how much of that to integrate or use, or what was? I was surprised actually because I thought that like. Well, I mean, it was a good test, right? Like having my editor read it, who just is not a Japanese speaker at yeah. all. Like if I, if it was clunky, if it was difficult to read with all the, the Japanese words and names, like she was going to let me know. But um, actually that was not, she didn't ask me to change that. And we also made a deliberate decision with the copy editor not to italicize the Japanese words because there are so many of them and and I know you know, usually that. you like italicize foreign words but like they're not foreign in the context of this book the book is yeah. set in Yamanaka yeah <laughs> so yeah um, I, I noticed that as well too that I, I think there are some words I don't remember what's italicized but it's not necessarily because they're Japanese it's they were naming their dialogue something or right or something yeah. like that right and I was and it wasn't just the fact that you chose the Japanese word it was that it was treated the exact same as the word that came before it and after it. Yeah. You know, and, well, it, and just, you're, it felt really That's nice. how your thinking becomes, I think, when you sort yeah. of live between cultures. And that was part of the experience I was trying to capture or as part of my job, I think, as a writer is to like be a bridge between these two experiences or cultures. I'm sure that you also like you start thinking and speaking in this kind of like mixed English and Japanese. <laughs> like I mentioned my husband's Japanese, but has spent most of his life his all his adult life since he was 18 in the US. So like we primarily speak in English, but it's always peppered with Japanese because sometimes mm -hmm. the Japanese is the Japanese word is like better or more yeah. fun. Yeah. Like, yeah, just depending it what just you're talking about. It just makes more sense. Yeah. The, but you know what? I mean, I think lots of people do that, like yeah. with whatever languages they speak, it's like mm -hmm. you start to mix them or even the way people use slang or whatever. Like that's like the way we all actually talk and think. So why not write yeah. it that yeah. way? Totally. It kind of, it gave me hope that there's just more room for, whether it be books or whatever, where people are, can just feel comfortable delivering it in the context, as, as what it is. Like you said, giving, giving something a name, you know, um, there is a name for this thing. And just committing to that being that thing and, and yeah, people can someone, learn it. You explain it. Yeah, this is what this means, yeah. and then like use its name. People yeah, can totally. Learn. Yeah, totally. Unfortunately, uh, I think that there's like food media. At least I think there's a lot of 
discussion about that right now and a real yeah. shift towards that. Yeah, I, that, that's really exciting and inspiring. I'm happy to hear that that's, that that's happening with food as well, too, because that's, I mean, mm -hmm. that's something that's been a challenge for sake for a long time, right? Is be, right? How do you give this to somebody in, in terms that will resonate with them, that will make them feel comfortable, you know, making a, in many cases, a monetary decision, right? Um, mm -hmm. That is in a lot of times not always cheap, especially if you're outside of Japan, right? And so, yeah. How to make that, you know, where is, how do you communicate the value or the appeal of that thing? And I feel the industry for a long time, it sort of leaned on, I say, simplicity or comparing uh, it to something comparing familiar. Comparing it to something else. Or, whereas, yeah. right? Whereas if you, but if you look at it, you know, really owning something and committing to it, just doubling down on it being what it, what it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you can still make it accessible and invite people in, but yeah. um Sometimes the original word for something is, is the best word for it. Best. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and think about how many like wine words have people in, have become completely oh, familiar totally. with in English and have no problem with. So, totally. I, you know, the th same thing can happen for sake. People just need absolutely. context. Agreed. 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 Oh, it's really, it was really, it was really nice. Um, Hannah. Thank you. You've I've taken up a whole ton of your time, um, and it has That's been lovely. Really a pleasure. It has been lovely chatting with you, um, and I could keep chatting with you about every nuance of each one of these chapters. But um, we'll leave that um, out so that people can actually go and go and read the book for themselves. Um, that's that's that's. Um, while, while I love um, the idea of people listening to this show um, and gaining something from it reading the book is actually the best way to, um, to, to glean. Um, well, I hope the we've sparked their experience. interest. So yeah, absolutely. And in, in sake, how about, since this is about, uh, about sake, what's, where are you at to close out? Where, where are things at with sake right now? You're in the brewery. I imagine you're probably going to be winding down the season, maybe in the next few weeks or so to a degree. Yeah. What's... Things are winding down the last, the last Moromi, the last mash of the season happens last week. I think I lose track okay. of time, but yeah. yeah, within the last week or so. And um, it's getting quieter there. One of my coworkers, Kajia san will be going back to farming. Somebody else will be going back to carpentry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, most mo all but one of the Kurabito, the brewery workers, have other seasonal work that they'll shift back to. And yeah. um, and for me, I'm I my book is coming out in yeah. a couple of weeks here, March 23rd. I don't know yeah. when this podcast will be released. It may, the book may it's, already be out by then. So. It may already be out or we might beat it a little bit. We'll see. We're kind of juggling episodes. Right. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll mm. see. But um, yeah, I was, where's, if, if people are looking for it, where should they go? Is there any recommended source? I mean, it's going to differ depending on where where they live in the sure. world. but <laughs> Sure. So, so for listeners in Japan, the easiest place to get a copy of Water Will water wood and wild things is going to be um any of the big online retailers mm. uh rakuten amazon yeah. kinokuniya all have it i don't know of any independent bookstores in japan that have it if you are in the u.s um you can go ask your local bookstore to get you a copy to pre-order it if they don't already have it um or just anywhere you like to buy books i'm yeah. supposed to remain impartial so yeah, gotcha gotcha <laughs> but i do have events at um Books are magic in Brooklyn and 
Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle, which are both very near and dear to my heart. Cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And thank you so much for spending all this time with me uh, this evening. I, when we're recording this, the at least the time being, it sounds like the the state of emergency should be, hopefully, fingers crossed, done in about three or four days here. Oh, really? Uh, which means hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. And if that's the case, then I'll be able to move around a little bit more. And so I would, I would love to make it out to Yamanaki. So hopefully, oh we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll you see, have to. I'll, I'll see you on on your side of this little island um, next time. That would be great. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we could probably get you a tour of Matsuda Shizo. <laughs> if we if we ask nicely. <laughs> Yeah. Excellent. And again, thank you so much. Um, I, all of our listeners, please do uh, plug that in your uh, search engine, Waterwood and Wild Things by Hannah Kirshner. And that was been a, another episode of Sake on Air. Sake on Air is made possible with the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. If you have any questions, thoughts, feelings about today's show or any of our shows, you can send us a message at questions at sakeonair.com. If you look for at sake on air on whatever it is, you look at photos on or read about people's opinions on the world on, on your computer or smartphone, you will probably find us. Uh, please do follow us along there. And we will be back very soon uh, with even more episodes. Um, that will do it uh, for this episode. Excellent. Thank you, Hannah. Cheers. Come back. Thank you so much. Thank this you. was really fun. Yeah, that was fun. That was wonderful. Very cool.